Welcome to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast about politics. I'm your host, Steve Phillips, and I'm old enough to remember the last time California had a recall election in 2003, where we ended up with a movie character as governor who promptly started slashing taxes and punishing poor people and blowing up budgets like props in an action movie and vetoing marriage equality rights legislation. Now, like a remake of a bad movie, we're facing another recall on September 14th. But this is very real, not fiction. The stakes are high and deadly serious. As serious as battling a deadly pandemic where thousands of people are still being hospitalized and as grave as control of the U.S. Congress if Dianne Feinstein, for whatever reason, is no longer serving and has to be replaced by the governor um, who's serving in 2022. The polls show that Gavin Newsom has a very real chance of being recalled, even though he's a Democrat, it's a Democratic state, and he won by a landslide in 2018. And part of the reason for this is that, uh, as our guest today pointed out on the Democracy in Color blog, he might lose because their campaign is spending most of their money on ads rather than mobilizing voters of color who make up the majority of the people who vote within the state of California. With the recall election coming up on September 14th, coming out of the summer where people have not been focused on politics and elections, we wanted to lift up this issue, make sure we all understand it, who's behind it, and get the word out to everyone that you know in California that it's coming up and people should vote. They should vote no, so we don't bury the lead here. So for this conversation, we're joined by someone who grew up in New York, but his work and some of his sports allegiances, inexplicably, are in California. And he's doing excellent work trying to beat back the recall efforts and will bring us up to speed. And so for this conversation, I'm joined, as always, by another East Coast transplant Charlene Chang, who's from New Jersey, and New Jersey and New York are basically the same thing, right, Charlene? How, how are you, and you want to introduce our guest? Yeah, no. So I was definitely not going to co-sign that. There's, first of all, New York and New Jersey are not the same. Uh, I was born in New York City, and I have so much love for New York. I went to grad school there, but I grew up in Jersey, and all the years that I've not been in Jersey, I've actually become more and more appreciative that I'm from Jersey and... You know, I always say, like, I have Jersey pride now. So, no, it's not the same. And I'm not going to let that comment stand. But I've been here now in California, I can't believe it, for more than two decades. And that is why I'm I'm also very interested in uh, and so glad that we're talking about the upcoming gubernatorial recall election. Um, and just to make clear to everyone who's listening, even if you don't live in California, you should care. And we're going to explain why, because there's a lot at stake. And again, like you said, Steve, the California recall election for governor is coming up on September 14th. That's just about two weeks away. And we just want to loop everyone in again that the California voters right now are being asked two questions on the ballot, whether they want to recall Governor Gavin Newsom, the governor of California currently, and who, if Newsom is successfully recalled, should replace him. So to frame up today's conversation, we'll be talking about, first of all, what a recall is, like what is a recall? How has the whole idea of a recall come to be? And who is pushing, who is behind this particular recall against Governor Newsom in California? We'll break down where this recall effort sits in the national political context and why it should matter to everyone around the country. Then we'll look at where Governor Newsom is going wrong in his campaign 
And ding, ding, he's going wrong in a lot of major ways. Here we are two weeks out and, you know, he's trying to fight the recall efforts and things are not looking that great. What he should have been doing instead, what he could and should be doing right now instead, and what our listeners can actually do even in this short window to to help if they would like to. So joining us today, and I'm super excited, is a dear friend of ours and a special guest, Joining us is someone who will help us understand all of these different moving pieces. And our entire team here at Democracy Color is you know, also you know, big fans of him and his work. And we have fun with him on social media. <laughs> you guys might touch upon that. So our special guest today is Ludovic Blaine. Ludovic is the executive director of the California Donor Table, which is a network of donors committed to building power in California's communities of color and making lasting progressive political change. He was hired as its first full-time staff person in 2009. Previously, Ludovic helped build people of color-centered movements around closing the racial wealth gap, environmental justice, media justice, campaign finance, and voting rights. Great topics. People like him making all the difference out there. He has also led capacity building, working in Haiti, Canada, Denmark, and the Gambia. Ludovic is a graduate of the City College of New York, shout out, as well as of leadership programs, including the Rockwood Leadership Institute, and he serves on several boards, including the Proteus Fund. Welcome, Ludovic. Thanks. Very glad to be here. Thank you for protecting our honor, Charlene, regarding the <laughs> New Jersey split. And as for Steve, I'm really happy to be on with somebody from, I think, Cincinnati. Um, uh, Isn't that basically like, I don't know, that's Texas? On, if you're going to New York, you fly into Newark. And how Ludovic in his incomprehensible sports constellation of support supports the quote New York Giants who play in New Jersey. But we don't have time to get in there. We've got a recall to deal with here. Yes. Let's, okay. We're going to focus on the recall. Let's focus on the recall. Glad to be on. So, Steve, you said you were old enough to remember the first recall. And I'll pretend like I'm not, but I, <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know as much. I, I wasn't in this world of politics yet, so I was, I was following less closely. And so I'd love to just have you just quickly give us some insight into that first recall in California, when it was, and just a bit of a summary. Yeah, so it, it actually was in a lot of similarities to what happened, what's happened here in that this was in 2003. Ray Davis was the governor. He had just been reelected in 2002. And similar to the early discussions with this one, it wasn't taken all that seriously at first. And so California has this recall law, which was rooted in a progressive reform back in the, the progressive era in the 1920s. And they were trying to make the state more democratic and more accountable to the population and less run by like party bosses, but it's really hasn't been modernized or updated in a long time. So it was very prone to abuse, which is what happened then is what's happening now. It's fairly easy relatively to get a uh, recall election onto the ballot, but it does require some threshold level of funding. So the other one it's in 2003 started out like kind of as this crackpot measure, but then Daryl Issa, who was a millionaire congressman, I think he had made his money off of a car alarm device or technology or whatnot. He put $2 million into it, and that enabled them to get the signatures to get onto the ballot because he actually wanted to become the governor and tried to get it there on, on the cheap that way. And so then what wound up happening was Arnold Schwarzenegger, who actually did not plan to run, went on The Tonight Show, and he was going to say he was not going to run after flirting with it and liking the attention of it. And he just changed his mind on the spot. And he's all like, I'm going to run for governor in the recall. 
And so it captured all his attention. He's a very famous movie star at the time. I like to now refer to him as an aging action hero. And what's so weird about it is that people were not actually voting for Schwarzenegger. They were voting for the Terminator. They were voting for a character in a movie. And there was like, oh, well, we'll have the Terminator. And that will really shake up the government. So it captured a lot of people's imagination. Plus, Gray Davis's campaign was very poorly run, very disorganized. I remember actually meeting with Willie Brown shortly after the recall qualified. And he was like, there should have been simultaneous press conferences in every county in the state by the local Democratic Party showing United Front that they're going to be fighting against us. But there was nothing like that. And so it was a very ill-conceived and poorly executed campaign, and he lost. And so he was recalled. Schwarzenegger won. The, there was like 120 or 30 or something people running against in that, in that other ballot, and kind of a mockery of democracy. And then, although he now is trying to like rehabilitate his reputation in terms of attacking Trump, Schwarzenegger was a pre-Trump Right. Actually, two weeks before the election, there was an L.A. Times piece about 15 different sexual assaults that he had been involved in. People just ignored, showing that you can get away with that. And then from a public policy standpoint, slashing funding, trying to you know do these Terminator-like actions that really wound up hurting poor people in particular. And then what even looks most callous in retrospect, which is why this is so serious as well, is twice vetoing the marriage equality bill passed through the legislature. He holds himself as a moderate, vetoed it twice for whatever, you know, calculating reasons. So this can and is and does become very serious and it can become a thing and was a thing before. And we were stuck with Schwarzenegger, um, I think it was for six years, actually. And so it's definitely something we have to take very seriously now so we don't replicate that poor period in history. Thanks, Steve. I really appreciate that that recap because I know for myself and some, you know, many other people who vaguely remember that era, they probably think back like, oh, remember those cool times where the guy who said, I'll be back, you know, was governor and people, I think, still have the impression like, oh, you know, that worked out overall. OK, you know, he was he was in office that whole time. But it's uh, I, I appreciate that you were able to just highlight sort of all the negative impact of his administration, his leadership. And just to help us understand, like, what's at stake today if um, Republicans win this time. So that was, okay, took us back into down memory lane, California history. And, oh, by the way, I wanted to just point out, I found a really interesting fact in an LA Times article that just came out a few days ago. Did you know that there was a former Wisconsin governor, Scott Walker? He was Republican. Apparently, he's the only governor in American history to ever successfully beat back a recall. Did you know that? Yeah, no, I saw you would you would put that in the Slack, and I had not. I mean, I knew I remember that Scott Walker fight intimately. Tens of millions of dollars were spent on that very small state. It was a major throwdown, particularly for labor and for the right wing. I mean, he was backed by the um, you know the Koch brothers and all those right wing major donors. But I did not know that that was the only successful uh, re, you know being repelling of a recall effort. Yes, I thought that was really compelling data because. If, if that's true, apparently it is, that it's just we're really talking about some pretty steep odds and not to mention the fact that we'll talk about how it's not like Newsom's team is knocking it out of the park. In fact, the average poll right now shows, this is according to CNN, a no vote on the recall sits at 52%, and that's four points ahead of a yes vote, which is currently at 48%. And you could say, well, it's great, they have 52%, but apparently that's too small of a margin of error. In other words, that's cutting it very, very close. And so, Ludovic, can you help explain to our listeners how a recall works and why it's a flawed process? Sure. So recalls in California, especially at the state level, 
have a much lower bar to qualify than in other states. So how a recall works is that people need to uh, submit a petition to the Secretary of State to establish a recall effort, to do some paperwork. After they do that, then they have to get uh, signatures. Here in California, the percentage of signatures, it's, it's a percentage of the previous gubernatorial race, is much lower, about half what it is in most other states. So that's why it's easier to have recall efforts in California qualify and get on the ballot than in other states. In this particular example, uh, not only is that generally true for California, but uh, right around election day 2020, uh, a judge decided to adapt the recall petitioning timeline to almost double the amount of time that the recall had to get enough signatures, again, in order to adapt to COVID. So ironically, because this is a state where we believe COVID is a thing, and we believe that voting rights is such that when COVID hits, uh, we need to make everything more accessible to voters. That judge decided to double the time. At that time, there were about six or seven other recall efforts of Gavin Newsom that were attempting to be qualified. None of them worked. This was the only one where the timeline was almost doubled. And it was in that time that they were able to get enough signatures to qualify. Remember, that was right around election day. So part of what happened was that the 6 million Trump voters in California, which is more than any other state, after they realized that he lost, although I guess I hesitate to say that because they still think Trump is president, but um, as they realized that Trump wasn't going to continue to be president, they poured their people power financed by right-wing Republican donors, so money and people power, into the recall and, and um, getting enough signatures to qualify. So it was a mix of a couple of flukes, including that judge expanding, doubling the time, that happening right as the presidential race was happening, and there being a bunch of Republican activists and Republican money deciding to make hay in our biggest state and one of our most diverse states in the country uh, by qualifying this recall. So the recall qualifying, there is a flawed process, but the recall itself qualifying doesn't indicate weakness on Gavin's part. It really was a series of flukes. Uh, that's kind of bad luck in all the timing. Yeah, for a separate topic and future, Ludovic and I both do a lot of work on California politics, but this is the kind of thing that really needs to be revisited in terms of the structure and the rules and the processes for it. Because It's the distortion of the democratic process, but also the very deadly serious consequences are far afield from the original conception of what a recall law would look like. The win or lose, uh, we're going to have to make sure that California changes uh, the recall laws to have it be not so easy um, to make sure that you can have a recall so close to the next election and to uh, probably also have more transparency around who's giving and why and things like that. So there's lots that this shows uh, need to be fixed in California's recall laws. So a little bit, Vic, thanks for all that. I heard you touch upon some of the motivations and reasons behind all these efforts. You were saying like there's many factions, you know, many of like different kinds of groups at first that were trying to initiate getting this on the ballot, uh, a recall. So what what are some of the reasons given and the reasons what you behind that, that are stated in terms of why on the opposition side, what is their argument for why Newsom should be recalled? And you recently wrote an excellent blog piece for Democracy in Color where you connect the dots between the roots of the recall effort to basically the white supremacist movement behind when Trump was in office and those who were behind January 6th. If you can give us a little bit of insight to those. 
Sure. The uh, recall, you know, it's funny, right-wingers don't really dog whistle anymore. They just bullhorn. Mm. So the recall itself was filed before COVID really hit. Uh, So first of all, the recall petition drive had nothing to do with COVID or or Gavin's response to that. Oh, that's interesting. Um, I didn't know that. What it is in the short form is a bunch of white grievances. So it it reads like a festivus of white grievances. Um, so, so there's complaints about immigration, about environmental protection, about schools, about regulations, about taxes. It's like the, the worst hits of, of white grievance uh, over and over again. Um, so it's pretty explicitly uh, actually a pretty interesting intersectional document around how the white supremacist right wing connects the dots because it's a listing of all the dots and their feelings about all the dots. So, so they're, they're pretty explicit about that. So that's uh, what drove the initial recallers. Um, and then over time, especially, again, it wasn't going to be a successful recall until right around election day when it got ex- extended, when the deadline got extended and national and in-state Republican mm-hmm. money went in. And then the voters, again, who were realizing that their candidate was losing, decided to jump into this to move the potential for a Republican win in a state where they would never win in a regular election, but could win in a small turnout special recall election. So this is, it started off as a white grievance strategy and it continues to be a potentially effective minority electoral strategy powered by white supremacists. So I guess I'll say a couple things on that as well. And so one being, you know, Sean, you made this point about the polls showing that, you know, it's four points ahead, et cetera, and that fine. Contextually, Biden won this state by 29 points. So for uh, the, the basically Gavin to only be ahead by four is a lot less than 29. Right. So there's that yeah, issue, right? For sure. And so the other part of it has to do with turnout. Right. And so in, in, in the 2003 recall, only half as many people turned out to vote as voted in the general election that had been beforehand. Right. And so the Trump people and the MAGA folks, and I don't want to wear a mask or have any vaccine or whatnot, are highly energized and motivated. And so if the majority of people who don't share that view don't vote, then that highly energized uh, minority can in fact prevail. And so that's the greatest, the greatest threat is apathy and unawareness in this election. So I just wanted to clarify that contextually. So if I wanted to pivot to the campaign itself, right? You and I were at a dinner in 2010 after Jerry Brown had been elected at the donor's house, only like a couple dozen people there. And somebody asked the Jerry Brown's campaign manager, Steve Glazer, who needs to own his uh, analysis, quote unquote, what about Latino voters? And Glazer, who had just run the gubernatorial election for Jerry Brown, in which Latina, who was a domestic worker for his opponent, had actually been the key person in switching the polling results by coming out and talking about how bad a person Meg Whitman had been. So Steve Glazer says, uh, well, Latinos are important, but they're really not the most important. What's really more important are women. Latinos are only like 14% of the electorate. So so many things wrong with that. As Ludwig saw when I picked up my fork and he restrained me from stabbing um, him. <laughs> um, what is that? First of all, Latinos were 22% electorate, not 14%. So if you're spending mm-hmm. $50 million, you don't even know the basic math of who's in the electorate. I mean, what does that say? And so you've got that reality taking place. And then on top of that, then there's a whole piece around, say, women. So 
Latinas are not women, right? African-American women. And so this whole right. notion, right? So that's, that's so dismissive. Yes. And so yeah. this was the so top. Who, is it? Who, who counts as women? <laughs> exactly. This was the top political strategist in the state who had just run a gubernatorial wow. election. That is so, so scary. 11 years later, Ludovic, how much progress have we made in terms of the strategic level of analysis around what has to happen in a gubernatorial election? And what have been the things that you're seeing around Gavin's campaign, which is not disconnected to me in terms of how close the polls are? So first of all, we've come a long way because Jerry Brown's former campaign uh, manager, Steve Glazier, is now in our state Senate. So that's that's the first piece in killing all progressive bills. Um, but secondly, I can't get away from uh, Gavin Newsom campaign ads, all of which feature white people. I've seen Liz mm. Warren, Bernie Sanders, uh, and then my email is getting spammed by Adam Schiff. Now, those are three wonderful people. Uh, I'm black, for those who don't know on the podcast, so I, I'm not sure how, how, you know, if the targeting is not getting to me about any black messengers. But yes, in one of our country's most racially diverse set of folks, they're leading with three white people here in California, where black, Latinx, and AAPI voters will make a difference. I haven't seen a single ad with famous or not famous people of color in it. You know, whether that's like Kerry Washington, who campaigned in Virginia, or Snoop, people like Dolores Huerta, or of course, athletes like Steph Curry or Clay Thompson, Draymond Green, or even your beloved star. You Steve. see how, I see, we see what you did there. Or, or I'm, you know, I'm getting to Steve's <laughs> beloved star from the Cleveland Lakers, LeBron James. Um, so we have lots of folks of color here yeah. um, who could be, who have campaigned for other people in other states who could be campaigning for Gavin Newsom here in this state where they live. And yet uh, we're just seeing three, three of the folks that the campaign is putting in front to be three white folks. So publicly, it seems very disappointing. They're uh, very focused on TV and digital ads and not very focused at all on, on direct voter contact. We understand they're spending about 10% of their $60 million on direct voter contact. And direct voter contact is really important. First of all, it is, the ballot is confusing. Firstly, because this is not a re regular election year. This is not a regular election time. My kid just started school. And so any big packets I'm looking for would be packets from the school, not from the registrar. This is the first time in a statewide race that every registered voter will get a ballot. So most people who are getting a ballot in the mail did not ask for a ballot in the mail. They do not know that they're getting a ballot in the mail. They've never filled out a ballot in, from the mail. So basic voter education is key. Then secondly, to keep Gavin, you have to vote no. So that's a little counterintuitive. And then thirdly, there's a lot of places where in California where where voters, especially voters of color, are not very excited about government because most of the government they experience are bad. They may be both um, reasonably blaming Gavin for uh, him not delivering enough, but also most voters in inland California for most of the last five years have been living in a Republican sandwich where they had Donald Trump at the federal level explicitly attacking them every day. And then a Democratic state government and then local, really right-wing Republican governments, county board of supervisors, cities, school boards, et cetera, 
that are to the right of Trump. So they're not inspired by Trump. They were already there with Trump and they've actually outlasted Trump. So voters, especially in inland California, already kind of live in a Republican regime. And what we've noticed is Gavin seems to be running more against someone who we'll talk about, I guess, in a second, Larry Elder and Donald Trump, than actually Joe Biden did, who was actually running against Donald Trump. So most of Gavin's campaign is uh, fear-mongering about Republicans. And those Republicans deserve a lot of fear-mongering because they are, for real, scary boogeymen. However, Gavin has to also campaign on why people should vote to keep him, not just what we need to stay away from. So it's almost as if Gavin's campaign hasn't learned from the lessons from Georgia Senate races, which were actually this year, which is hard to remember. That was also the same 2021 that we're in now. From last year's presidential race, where Joe Biden both attacked Donald Trump, but gave people reasons to vote not just against Donald Trump, but for him. And all the wins that we've had across the state here in California, where we've gotten Democratic candidates, mostly a diverse set of them, to run on either their existing track record or what they were planning to do, rather than just against Republicans. So this campaign is too much in love with TV and digital ads, too much in love with the white electorate, and really not learning the lessons that the rest of the country and we've experienced here in the state over the last decade about what works to win. And I just want to add, in case we hadn't mentioned this before, and in case some listeners don't know, because I don't assume that all listeners know about the demographics of California, California is a what they call a majority, quote unquote, minority state, right? And so the the vast majority of the population in the state are people of color. Right. And I, I, and I just want to put an estimation point on that on that point. As I even in preparing for this, I've been, uh, you know, the new census data came out right in our last pod. We talked about this surprised at how how much more diverse it has even become. Right. So part of the at that fateful dinner where I didn't did not stab Steve Glazer. I remember him saying repeatedly, well, the people were saying, why isn't Jerry being more progressive? And he kept saying, well, you could, if you just want to appeal to the base, that's, you can do that, I guess, but we're trying to win. And I remember thinking at the time, well, what if the, who you call the base are actually the majority of people, right? And so you have that reality. And so obviously we've been making that point, that, that argument for a long time. But they would kind of dismiss it as like, well, the people who turn out to vote and we have to model this on likely voters and those are majority white, therefore, blah, blah, blah. So I did not know until a few weeks ago, Mac, and looking at the exit polls from 2020, the majority of people who cast ballots in California in 2020 were people of color. It crossed the 51% threshold. And so they've all they've conceded that the number of people in the population is majority people of color, but they've they've held clung to this anachronistic understanding around who the actual voters are, and they are not uh, majority white anymore. So technically, you could win an election in California with zero white folks. I mean, that that concept, unfortunately, we've got a third plus of whites who are more progressive. So I just think that that point needed to be elevated. And there's one other point that I wanted to, to make in this regard. And then, and that's this question about, although California is a blue state, and in terms of defeating Trump and backing Biden and being democratic. It's not extraordinarily progressive on racial issues, as we saw in that election. So Biden wins by 29 points, but the ballot measure to restore race-based affirmative action in California failed. 
And so what does that actually say in terms of what the mindset of the electorate is and the, and the susceptibility to different messages and these more fundamental points, right? And so we can't take anything for granted um, in terms of this election. And we've really got to make sure that we are running a strong campaign and most importantly, galvanizing the voters of color who are not just the cornerstone or the base, but who are in fact the fundamental majority of people. That's also crucially important because again, this time every registered voter is going to get a ballot. So while there are likely and unlikely voters, the barrier to voting at this point is very low. People have already been receiving their mail-in ballots. And so assuming that the likely voters from previous voting regimes will continue to be likely voters now, when many of those likely voters actually voted in person, and then you have unlikely voters who used to have to vote in person who now can vote at home, we need to, and we are, making sure to have an expansive campaign where we can engage every potential voter, because right now, every registered voter has a ballot in their home. And so we are doing that, and the campaign we don't feel is making sure to engage the potential voters. They're just focused on the likely voters. Ludovic, we understand that the California donor table where you work has been on the ground working fast and furious, trying to make up for Newsom and his team's flawed strategies so far and to try to convince the governor's campaign to fund on-the-ground efforts, mobilizing voters, mobilizing voters of color. And the California Donor Table, we know, is working closely with several of the organizations that you lifted up in your awesome piece. Again, we encourage everyone who's listening to check out Ludovic's piece on the Democracy in Color website. We have a blog, and it's Ludovic's going through and explaining everything about the recall and how people can make a difference in these final two weeks. So Ludovic, can you explain to our listeners how can they, in this short amount of time before September 14th, make a difference? And what can they do to help make sure that enough people vote no on September 14th? So first, we need to make sure everybody listening knows if they're in California that they need to vote no. Then they need to tell their friends that. Secondly, um, we funded about uh, $3.2 million to 13 people of color run groups around the state, not only in the Bay and L.A., but battlegrounds like San Diego with Alliance San Diego, Orange County Civic Engagement Table, and also in Inland California, Communities for New California in the Central Valley, and Inland Empire United. Um, and so we're funding groups around the state uh, that are rooted in Black, Latinx, and or AAPI communities uh, to be doing basic voter education and also telling people to vote no and why, and making connections between how those groups have already been doing organizing in those communities and both what the threat of the recall is and also the opportunity to turn out more voters to save Gavin's bacon, not because we like Gavin, frankly, but because we are actually all Gavin's bacon. Whoever the governor is, we're in the pan. <laughs> and so we need to make sure that we don't, at this point, have California's first black governor, which would be Larry Elder. I do not want that. Gavin is good enough and we can hold him accountable to make him better. And so we are funding those groups and those groups are phone banking, door knocking, sending texts, rallying, having events, doing all kinds of things to be engaging voters where they are to make sure that they know that one, there is an election, two, how to vote in the election, and three, that they should vote no so that we can continue to move forward as a state. Steve, what should people do 
after voting no? There's two questions. And I know this is a, a, a real a bin, bit of a source of confusion. And people have come to me and said, what is your advice about what should we do around the second question? And again, the second question is, if there are not enough no votes, and there is a successful recall against Newsom, and he's he's basically, you know, has to step down, who should replace him? And that's the second question. Then there, there are some, some options. And so how should people answer the second question? Right. So it's actually a little bit of a you know, controversial issue in terms of on the on the progressive side. Because let me just step back again, go back to the 2003 recall in terms of the strategic piece. And so Gavin's team, uh, which is a strong logical argument to how why they went about it this way, has been was very aggressive in trying to keep any Democrats off of the question two part. So that it would just be the Republican recall was the heavy heavily Democratic state just vote no. And then that's the end of the conversation. And so there's a there's a strong logic to that. And particularly looking back at the 2003 situation where Cruz Bustamante was a Democrat and he was lieutenant governor at the time, he jumped into the question two part. And it was actually it was a confusing messaging piece around no on recall, yes on Bustamante, right? And so Gavin's people really wanted to avoid that in terms of the framing of it. So I understand that and I get that. And I think that's still their point of view. Having lived through a recall and the governor who got who came elected as a after a recall, I actually don't think that that is at this point. I understand the tactical point how getting to this point. And I think that 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 probably may even have been correct at that at that point. But at this moment now, when people are trying to figure out how to fill it out, I think people should be filling it out. Uh, the question two part. And so, what are our choices, right? So, if in fact he were recalled, then the leading candidate is this. Trump right wing, sadly black man, Larry Elder, who is like, would, I mean, if you think Trump was bad, right? <laughs> In terms of like, so having that person so as the governor would just be like cataclysmic. So what is our worst case, in any worst case scenario, what do we actually do? So that's where I feel it becomes a tactical question. So, so I don't further bury the lead. What I did, maybe I'll put it this way in terms of is I actually voted for this. Uh, there's, w- there's one Democrat polling well in the polls named Kevin Pathra. He says, you, YouTube um, star guy, 29 years old. Yeah, you can't make this stuff up. Oh, you know, I spent a half hour this morning watching his YouTube video around real estate sales and how you, you get rich and whatnot. He's got a million YouTube followers. Let me just say so he So to clarify, he's clearly a scammer. He is selling these courses on how to get rich. Whereas if you knew how to get rich, why would you need to be selling courses in the first place? Why would you just go get rich? And there's a, there's a number of problematic parts of his politics as well. I mean, most problematically, there's talking about also round up all different homeless people, et cetera. So by no stretch of the imagination, do I want this man to be the governor of the state of California. In a worst case scenario, in a state where our saving grace w- will be that the legislature is two-thirds, nearly two-thirds Democratic and can be a significant check around whoever is in the governor's office, who would do the least damage? And who would do the least damage in the fairly short period of time and the big picture between the next governor's election in 2022? And so my analysis and assessment is that PAFO would be the be the least bad option, do the least amount of damage, most importantly, partly because he's so busy doing his daily YouTube videos. And that I think there is a, and that would try to forestall, and I think there's a chance, that's the other point, not just random, like I love this dude. 
but that he is doing fairly well in the polls because he's the only Democrat in such a Democratic state. People look to turn over the ballot. They're like, well, who's the Democrat? Oh, I'm going to support the Democrat. So to me, if people want to vote on the second option, that's what I did. Let's put it that way. I voted for that dude. And I do, and that's because I've seen how bad it is if you if it goes down and we get a really bad person in office. So that is what I would say matter. Can I just say, I mean, I'm grateful for our democracy, but man, it gets whack. It just gets like, it's like, it's very, I mean, well, it, people who are had, not part of our country just heard what, well, we yes, have, what, what we have to deal with, like our choices. It's we like, just came out of having a white nationalist, sexual assaulting uh, reality television star almost destroy the entire democracy. So I know there's some context here. And don't forget, he, uh, Donald Trump, um, has sent appreciations to Larry Elder in his books because Larry was one of the people who inspired Donald Trump to run. So Larry's not a Trump-like person. Trump is a Larry-like person. Wow, I did not know that. <laughs> Bad choices. I did not know that fact, Ludovic. I have literally been reading some op-eds from just mainstream papers where, where they're they're not, they're definitely anti-Trump, but they're writing about Elder as if he's actually like kind of okay. I mean, I don't know, have you guys been reading any pieces like this or these kind of takes where it's kind of like, well, Larry's not as bad as Trump and he's he's just not that bad. Jesus. Uh, <laughs> I mean, yeah, he's, like I said, he he he's Trump's black friend from before Trump was president. So he, Trump, wanted to be president to be like Larry kind of. And uh, I think that maybe that that is a good way to kind of, you know, bring this full full circle and 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 wrap this right that, you know, as we put out in our newsletter, this whole recall is, you know, make America great, anti-vax, anti-mask, temper tantrum. But that because of the way the rules are set up, it could actually be terribly problematic, right? So that's the thing I mentioned in the, in the opening. Diane Feinstein is 90, almost 90. There's this questions around, is she going to resign as senator? So that, you know, the, and if she were to no longer be senator, then the governor of California would, would, would pick her replacement. And so a complete worst case scenario is that Gavin gets recalled, Elder becomes the governor, Feinstein's unable to continue to serve. He appoints a Republican replacement for Feinstein. We lose our democratic control of the U.S. Senate. Mm. So the consequences of this are very serious. People need to make sure to tell all their friends that it's happening, all their California-based friends that it is happening, and to vote, and to vote no. Yeah, I'd say that um, usually um, the liberal and progressive cavalry for states comes from California and leaves California and helps other places. We fly to Vegas, we fly to Texas, we go to Florida, we go to Virginia, lots of stuff like that. We now need some reciprocity from folks around the country to help out. Because like you said, Steve, not only could we have a, a black right-wing uh, Republican governor of our largest state, not only could he potentially appoint a replacement for a Dianne Feinstein, but even if that doesn't happen, the country needs California to deliver as many of our congressional votes to keep a Democratic House majority as possible and having a black Republican governor while those elections are happening will make it extremely challenging to do that so we need the cavalry not just in state most of the cavalry in state is active but people from around the country to connect with groups again whether it's some of the groups that i mentioned before or courage campaign i think indivisible is doing stuff voto latino so if you could call into the state and turn out voters that's helpful if you can 
reach out to your California friends. That's helpful. If you reach out to folks who have some money, pitch in whatever you have, that's helpful. We're actually all in this boat together um, and we need to make sure it doesn't sink. So um, we've been really appreciative of the support that we've gotten, both financial and, and people time uh, from around the country. And we got a, about two more weeks and we need as much help as possible. The uh, 88 convention, Jesse Jackson says, uh, do caucuses, four parents came on immigrant ships, mine came on slave ships, whatever the original ships, we're all on the same boat today. All right. So that is all the time we have for this podcast today. Thank you for listening to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips. If you're not already, you can follow Ludovic on Twitter at, at Ludovic Speaks. And I may or may not be forwarding him a tweet from Mina Kimes talking about how bad his New York Giants football team is. Please help us get the word out about this podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, sharing with your friends tweeting at Democracy Color and at Steve P. Tweets and finding us at Democracy in Color on Facebook and subscribing to our newsletter at democracyincolor.com, which comes out every week. If you listen to our podcast on iTunes, please leave us a rating and a comment. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production produced by Olivia Parker, support from Charlene Chang, Bola Onifade, and April Elkier. Recorded virtually with the assistance of the podcast studio of San Francisco. Please, please, please tell everyone you know in California to vote and to vote no on the recall. Until next time, keep the faith.